I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Well, I've been wanting to get this gentleman on my show for so long. This is Dr. Jim Rickaba. <laughs> so glad hey, you Barbara. are here. How are you doing? I am doing great. I, I just so happy you are here. Well, I'm happy to be here. This is nice. And I always like to start off and do a little overview of you. I like to boast about you. Is that okay <laughs> if I do a little bit as of As long that? as you keep it really short, that would be fine. Oh, gosh, it's kind of hard to keep it short. You got a lot here. Okay, this is Dr. Jim Rickabaugh. He serves as the Senior Advisor to the Institute for Personalized Learning. If that I don't know if a lot of people know about it, but I'm just going to tell him it's an education innovation lab dedicated to transformation of public education. And I said personalized learning. That's how I knew you, right? That's, that's, <laughs> that's right. how we met. <laughs> that's how we met. Yes, And Jim formerly served as the director for six years. You've been the superintendent in several districts in not only Wisconsin, but also Minnesota. Yes, Midwest, yes. You just like to keep busy, right? Yes, I try to do it. (laughs) That keeps me out of trouble, Barbara. (laughs) So, Jim, you also are the author of Tapping the Power of Personalized Learning. That's a roadmap for school leaders. And I know a lot of leaders that have told me this has been so wonderful. And we're going to talk about that oh, a little bit more. Okay, thank you. You did sure. that. And you're also co-author of Five Levers to Improver, Improve Learning, How to Prioritize for Powerful Results in Your School. Is that all? No. No, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've written more articles, Barbara, than I could probably count. I know. Uh, but uh, I'm actually, I, 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 this, so I will tell you, this is first, first on the air. Uh, I am planning book three. They'll start right after the first of the year. We can talk about that later if you'd like to. Oh, well, I didn't know about that. So, uh, yes. So you have a way of getting things out of people. I sure do. Well, that one, that will be good because we'll have to share it. But welcome, Jim. I'm just so glad Thanks. you're here. So, here. so glad here. So um, I always like to start off kind of getting a little bit, you know, to kind of know about you, your family, because there's probably things you've never told us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I, we are we are a family of educators. We cover actually the waterfront. My wife, for years, uh, my wife Lynn has been a math tutor, and our uh, oldest son. Uh, both of our children are grown now. Our our son is a professor at Appalachian State University, just a newly minted PhD, uh, and he's in his first professorship and loving every minute of it. And our daughter is at the other end of the continuum. She's an early childhood educator. So uh, we, we, cover the, we cover the waterfront uh, from starting formal education to, for most people or many people, uh, the end. Um, I spent, gosh, more than 45 years in education and um, more than 20 years as a superintendent. And then I, I actually, and I loved all that work. I loved all that. But uh, the work I've been doing for the last 10 years around learner-centered, personalized learning has actually become my consuming, maybe all-consuming passion. Um, so it's been a fun journey. Wow, really fun journey. to have your whole family as educators. Yeah, well, you can imagine Thanksgiving or other holiday conversations because there are also educators in extended families. So it's a, it's a, a, the, the in-laws and siblings 
who aren't in education often find themselves feeling a little bit excluded when we're talking about issues and ideas around education. I just need to join your table. I don't have anyone. I start talking, they roll their eyes. They're like, (laughs) oh, there she goes again. I'm like, oh, but it's so wonderful. (laughs) Isn't it exciting to have your children? What what are your children's names? Yes, it is. So uh, the oldest is Jay. He's actually another James, but uh, to distinguish himself is his, calls himself Jay, and our daughter's Christine. Oh, well, they, uh, they're they very lucky to have a family. And it sounds like your wife is amazing, too. She's I- amazing. I, actually, particularly amazing because she's put up with me all these years and all of the comings and goings and um, ideas and, and uh, adventures. So, yes, she's, she is truly amazing. Well, I'm glad that you have... Uh, your wife with you too, because it really means a lot to have the whole family. Yes, it does. Yep. In fact, her her willingness to sort of keep everything together and organize gave me lots of flexibility over the years to be able to do the things that um, I wanted to do and that uh, have been passion of mine. So, yes, she's pretty amazing. Uh, it just, I mean, I'm lucky. I have a wonderful husband who understands my craziness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you're passionate about something, it's just it just means a lot. And, and trying to and personalize learning, transform teaching and learning like you're doing. And you've made a big difference. But before we get there, because I know we can go really... Um, we can go a lot of places. A lot of places. What was it like for you when you were young as a student? What, mm. what was school like? Well, um, so you probably know this about me. I tend to be an achiever. Oh, really? So... <laughs> so, so so for me in school, it was all about, you know, the, the task, if it was a task was given to me or a challenge was set out, I would go after it. But as I think back to my experience in education, what was missing often was um, the connection to purpose uh, that, that rarely, I think, as I look back, do I recall a specific purpose or for that matter, a compelling purpose around learning, which meant being an achiever, um, my focus typically was around doing well on the test and getting good grades. And I was fortunate um, uh, to do both most of the time. But the, the downside of that was um, I, I shudder at how much I forgot because I learned it for the test, not for its inherent benefit or for other value that it brought to me. Not that I forgot everything, but I but, and, I, and I saw it in my students um, over the years the same way, that when we learn for the test, if that's the driver, and by the way, far too often as educators, we say to students, you need to know this or learn this because it will be on the test. The downside is once the test is over, once the assessment is passed, too often what was learned is also let go. And it's a natural part of the brain, but it's an unfortunate consequence for learning. I. I mean, I so agree because that's how it was for me. Um, I didn't do very well in school, but that's only because um, I just learned how to do school to get out of school. I didn't, and I've heard that from so many that I've talked to in my and the podcasts have said the same thing as you. They they learned how to be good test takers. Well, and I think often uh, the the sad part is that even the act of learning tended to be very linear and focused on what was going to be on the test. 
And in the process, we ignored and failed to explore so much that would have been interesting and compelling and enriching uh, because no one ever really thought to stop and um, talked about why what we were learning had value for us. I mean, that was never even part of the, the conversation for the most part. Every once in a while, however, something would come along, a, a project or a concept that, in, that was so powerful that it transformed or trans, it, it, all of that uh, and became a really meaningful thing. And that, but, but unfortunately, that, that experience was much more the exception than it was the rule. Yeah, and that's, you know, many, I'm going to say my age, I think I'm older than you. <laughs> uh, probably not very, very much as you are. <laughs> but um, it, it's kind of the way teachers were taught for so long that they didn't really know. I mean, I had one teacher, I remember, who wanted to do projects and got in trouble for doing them. Because <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't really learning, right? Yeah, that wasn't really learning. We had too much fun, and I was like yes. that. So, yeah. so um, what... You know, what changed to make it so you wanted to go into education? Well, so having said that, we're a family of educators. I'm the first educator in my extended family, among my siblings and my, my parents. And I, and I will tell you that the, the choice to go into education was probably driven by two things. One were some educators that I admired, that I thought were brilliant people. Um, in fact, I can tell you a specific example uh, in in. It was in eighth grade. We were doing a, a project on exploring careers. And I was having difficulty deciding on a topic. And my eighth grade teacher, Mr. Kitch, said to me, Jim, you really should think about going into education. I think you'd make a great teacher. Now, it happened that, that Mr. Kitch was a teacher that I admired greatly and thought was a great teacher. He was very interesting. He was someone who would provide context, even though not always purpose. Uh, and I thought at the time, if Mr. Kitch thinks I would be a good teacher, I bet I, I should really pay attention to that. Long story short, maybe 25 years later, uh, I was at a conference and uh, was visiting with the superintendent in that school district where, where I had attended. And Mr. Kitch, it turns out, was retiring that year. And I was so appreciative of the encouragement and advice that I, I um, took the time to actually call Mr. Kitch and thank him for uh, that nudge. Interestingly, Mr. Kitch, while he remembered me, didn't remember having made the comment and was shocked to hear that it made such an impression. Uh, but on my side, it was like a, a, a driving force that Mr. Kitch thinks I could be a good teacher. Therefore, I really should think about that. Um, so that combined with the opportunity to make a difference in kids' lives and other people's lives made that an obvious choice for me. Oh, what a wonderful thing to let a teacher know. That's a, yeah, I don't, I don't think some teachers know that they've changed kids' lives. You know, I mean, it's really important to let them know. In fact, my guess is that it's a very small minority that if we actually knew how much of a difference we made in students' lives, we would be absolutely humbled. Uh, because, and I think in many cases, the children don't or the students don't even realize because our influence becomes so integrated in who they are uh, that they might not even separate it. Uh, but I think it, it is true 
that educators too rarely come to know the full impact that they have on the students that they whose lives they touch. And you know that there are some teachers that probably see kids more than their parents see them. <laughs> you know, yes, when you think, that, I mean, that makes such an influence because of all the time yes. they're there with them. And that, that's wonderful. Well, and for many students who don't have a good support system in life, the educators in their lives are their support system. And sometimes educators don't even realize that's what's going on, that 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 their modeling, their engagement with learners is far outsized what they realize. And I think, see, I worked in um, high poverty schools and knowing and trying, and we even went to go visit the families, which, you know, to me opened my eyes because I'm white and privileged, yes. sure. had yeah. no idea what some of yeah. these kids were going through. But even in privileged homes, they may not even have books or may not even talk to each other. There might be some things like that. Parents are busy and there are a lot of things going on. It's not just because just because people have means doesn't mean that their lives are necessarily uh, not chaotic, not stress and trauma filled. Um, so, yeah, it's important. It's important to know students and visiting in their homes is a really great way to do that. Well, this is great that you went to see Mr. Kitch, K-I-T-C-H, is that how they... K-I-T-C-H, David, yes. Oh, what a... Oh, that was really special. Great guy. So, um, what was your first job as an educator? Well, as a teacher, um, I taught high school. I taught, actually, history and Spanish um, in a small high school in Wisconsin. What city? What city? Actually, Milton. So, it's a small school district near Madison. Oh, I love Madison. But as I, but interesting, sort of in in the in that strand of educators making a difference. Just before I graduated from college, one of my a professor that I respected greatly said, "So just to be really clear, your graduation is not the end; it's the beginning, and and you might take a year, but you need to start working on your master's immediately. Really? Because if you don't, if you don't." Life happens, and it will be get more difficult. And so, being also compliant, uh, within the first year, I started working on my master's and stayed in school all the way. Well, I continued to work, but continued to be in school until I finished my PhD. So, wow, have you gone back and talked to that professor? <laughs> uh, yes, although uh, unfortunately she passed away from cancer not long after that. Oh. But um, I would go over to their house at night, and they would you know, for dinner and those sorts of things. I actually worked in the same uh, town where I went to college. So it was very, it was very convenient and, lo and lots of fun. Oh, so she made a, a difference. Very really amazing difference. that, you, well, I was a history teacher. So it's uh, amazing how almost everyone I talked to is either humanities, history, or language or something where mm, they could yeah. talk to the kids. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, it, it happened that she actually was a Cuban refugee. Really? Wow. So, yeah. She had been, uh, I think, at an advertising for Coca-Cola in Cuba and then had uh, fled with her husband uh, at the time that Castro took over. So wow. we're now way back in history. So she came all the way to Wisconsin. Yeah. Lost everything and then went back to school at the University of Indiana um, and uh, then became a professor. I, yeah. It's amazing when you 
think of the people that touch your lives and some of the pe- yeah, things it? people go through. So how long were you a teacher there? So for four years, and then I moved um, uh, actually into the Chicago suburbs as a dean of students, which um, in that setting was like an associate principal without all the good, the fun things. It was almost all discipline. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, which drove me, I actually, I, it was interesting. I was, those were great times, and um, I learned a lot, but I also found my perspective on students becoming too narrow and, and unhealthy. So that then just pushed me on, and so I ended up uh, becoming an associate principal and then a building administrator and then moved to central office in curriculum and eventually became a superintendent. So, so what district were you superintendent? So um, actually I was a superintendent in a, a so this is a long name. <laughs> it's a, a uh, it's called Oconomowoc. It's a suburb of Milwaukee. And then I moved to um, Burnsville, Minnesota, which is a suburb of Minneapolis, right near People Mill and Mall of America. And then I came back to Wisconsin and was the superintendent of Whitefish Bay until um, I left in 2010 to to go to the Institute. Because I've heard of you, you know, we talked about Whitefish Bay. I knew about that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So just yeah. as a background, both my parents sure. are from Milwaukee and oh, I yes, have I, family. We talked about yes, that. Yes, we yes. did. And my and they had big families. So there's a lot of families still in there are a lot of big families in, in, in Madison and Milwaukee area. Beautiful yeah. area. So, yeah, so yeah. you live cold winters though. Very cold winters. Well, that's why I'm here in California. Yeah, I know. That's why you're in California. <laughs> I know that. You're a very smart woman. Well, I don't know about that. It's, it's a little expensive here. So, <laughs> um, but you're well, more than welcome to come out and visit anytime it gets okay. really cold. So you're living now still in, in Whitefish Bay. Yes. Yep. Oh, that's wonderful. So in 2010, is that, that's when you were, it was CISA one or was it the Institute? Yeah, so I was in, I was, uh, um, uh, superintendent in Whitefish Bay and there were a group of us, uh, largely superintendents who were just sort of scratching our heads in frustration with maybe t- with two observations. And this really actually what launched the Institute, um, one observation was just that educators today are working under more stress, more pressure, working harder than, than any of us could recall in our careers, yet we're still not reaching far too many kids. And so you know, our conclusion was this is the, what, we're, what we're facing isn't a matter of effort. It's not that people don't care. And the, the second was that up until 2010, um, we were continuing to get more money every year to operate schools. But we found ourselves repeatedly cutting programs, which, again, seems like there's something wrong. So we committed to spending a year to try and see if anybody had figured out this issue. And in 2010, if you said personalized learning, if people didn't give you a blank stare, they just concluded that what you're talking about was computer-based learning, that this must be computers. Um, And so we, we, we read everything we could, talked to everybody we could. It ultimately came to a very obvious and, in, in retrospect, very obvious conclusion, and that is the problem is not that people aren't working hard enough. And even though resources are tight, the primary problem isn't money. It's that we have a, a design, a school design, that was that is not aligned with what we're asking schools to do. And that so... You know, it's sort of like all learning is personal, but we have a system that's set up as though it's a corporate activity. And so our question was, what would happen if we actually started the design process by looking at it 
through the eyes of the learner instead of looking at it through the curriculum or, or other structural elements. And that really launched this sort of work that said, all right, so let's, let's really play with that. Turns out that learning has always been personal and that we knew that and had practiced that up until the point where it became or, or we designed it in order to prepare workers for industry at, in the, at that point, the moving assembly line. And so our schools became this sort of metaphor, a living metaphor, for the early moving assembly line that creates all kinds of problems for learners and for educators. And so we just sort of, the question was, if we stopped thinking of it that way and asked ourselves, what would we, how would we engage learners if we didn't have the system we have? Suddenly, there are all kinds of options, really good options, and that engage learners that have not been engaged by the current system in far better ways. Um, and so that's really the sort of the story of how we got started. We, we were, became so convinced, we ended up writing a white paper on the, on the topic that still is on our website, by the way. And we were fortunate that the regional service center in Wisconsin, they're called uh, Cooperative Education Service Agencies. The governing board read the paper, was listening to what we were doing and said, you know, we're willing to put some resources behind this. So for the first two years, they said they would fund the institute. And at the end of that, we'd see if there, are, if there were legs under it. Was there enough momentum to keep going? And at the end of the last two years, uh, those two years, um, not only was there enough momentum, it was continuing to grow. Uh, we then shifted into um, a, a sort of pay-as-you-go. And so since that time, the Institute has operated based on services we provide. Uh, no big grant funding. Uh, and part of that, by the way, was we were asking educators to do this work with the resources they had. And we felt it only made sense for us in terms of our work to do work of enough quality that people were willing to to use scarce resources to support it. And Thankfully, we're now coming up on the 10th year or in the 10th year of existence and are still making it. But um, it's not always been easy, as you well know, Barbara, that, that it, it's, it's tough. But uh, one of the things we found is if people make those tough design decisions on the front end, that you're less likely to let it go later because the money ran out. And in education, far too often, really great ideas end up being abandoned because they were funded by outside money. They weren't, they didn't force, or the, the, the resources didn't force the tough thinking on the front end. And so the commitment wasn't really deep. And too often, really good ideas, I think, have been left behind because the funding ran out, not because the idea wasn't good, it didn't matter for kids. Or they got more initiatives in, or a new or superintendent. Something else, yeah. they moved on to something else. Something else, else but... There's how many school districts involved now? So um, there are um, over 60 formal memberships. So these are people who pay to, to be members. Uh, we're supporting over 100 projects spread around the Midwest. In fact, last week we had our annual convening. So it's like our conference. There were 13 different states represented um, and about 500 people. So it continues to grow. Wow. Well, I love the... The idea of using the resources and the people you have and making it self-sustainable so they can, yes. they own yep. it. That's the whole idea of personalized right. learning anyway, The whole right? idea is that, yep, that, that each of us needs to own our learning. 
and the system needs to support that process. The, now, I'm veering off from some of the questions because, you know, this it's is, okay. you know me. I mean, I can't it's help okay. it when you start talking it's about really personalized fine. learning. It's in the beginning, it must have been tough when the when the superintendents come in and they got this great idea, the Institute for Personalized Learning. How did you get everybody on board? All the teachers, the parents? and Yeah. So um, that's interesting. And it's probably a longer converse, a longer description. Let me give you sort of the short the short, we were serendipitously at the time we were getting started. The Council of Chief State School Officers, which is the state superintendents or commissioners of education in the fifty states, were having a similar conversation. Just saying, there's something wrong here. We really need to rethink. So actually, while we were writing a white paper, so were they. Um, and so about the time that the institute launched, the Council of Chief State School Officers launched um, an innovation lab network that continues today. Uh, under the the auspices of the Council of Chief State School Officers and the Stupsky Foundation out in San Francisco was willing to support the work, but not, not to fund the work, but to provide expertise or resources. So if we needed consultation in an area, they'd be willing to fund the consultation, but not send money directly, which for us fit very well in our model because we needed the insight, we needed the expertise that arrangement allowed us to get it without the research agenda or the initial, the sort of change agenda that philanthropists often bring to the to the work. So it allowed us to stay independent. But we just we started out with a convening not unlike we had last week, and we sort of laid out the case and we brought in some people to do some speaking around that. Then actually, one of the speakers was from School of One. Remember in New York oh, City? Oh yes, yes. So one of the speakers was from there. And we just asked people, does this make sense? Is this something you think we should do? And we were hoping to get maybe five school districts that would be willing to start. And out of the gate, we had a dozen. And that then that grew to more than 20 pretty quickly. So obviously, from our perspective, at least, it was that there's something here that's worth pursuing. It's something that we need to stay after. Now, what we didn't know in 2010 would fill an auditorium. And we've learned a lot along the way. We've not, we don't know everything, and I don't know that anybody does, because the thing about learning is that there's also some mystery to it, and it's different for different people. And so it keeps us, I think, fresh and learning all the time, and we should. But uh, it's come a long, long way, and I think there's still confusion around when people say personalized learning. There are still those who think that's computer-based learning, or they think it's something else, or they think it's whatever kids want to learn, they should go and learn that there's no accountability. And those are things that we just have to we keep nudging back against. Uh, but no, it's continued to grow. And I think what's really great, though, is how it's transformed lives of learners. And that's the piece that makes, makes every day worth doing the work. Well, you have a lot of great stories. I know a lot of your schools, because we did work at yes, with you, yeah, a lot of your exactly. schools. Yeah, you've been a partner, a partner in this work around uh, yeah. many of these schools. Yeah. So yes, you do know. And but some of them, they didn't need it, any of us. They were, they were excited and they wanted to learn. And they, and what was really cool is letting go and letting the kids, you know, just shine. Yes. You have academies. Yes. You had all of them were different too. Yes, in fact, interesting. Um, we have worked with the University of Wisconsin-Madison to do some research around this. It was really interesting. Early on, uh, they wanted to get their heads around the work. So they spread out across the sites, went out and observed. 
in our first meeting with the research team, they said, we have, a, we have a question for you, a research question we're struggling with. And that is, every place we go where this work is going on, it looks a little different. So what is fidelity? Because if you think about fidelity normally, we think about, you know, there was a research protocol and there was a program protocol. And fidelity is, are you following the processes and spending the same amount of time that you're supposed to? It's like, are you, fidelity is to the, the protocol. Uh, and so they were saying, how do, you, how do you think about that? And so for us, it was sort of now pushed our thinking out into, it's really about fidelity to purpose. That if you're really clear about what we're trying to do for learners, the fidelity is, is what we're doing developing capable learners? Are we promoting ownership and agency? Are we helping students become more efficacious as learners? That the fidelity is actually to those larger pieces, not the minute program protocols that we normally think about when we think about what is fidelity. So it's really pushed our thinking out on that. Yeah, because I, I, you know, we've talked about agency, we've talked about self-efficacy, and all, but you've never mentioned this idea of fidelity before, so that I remember anyway. So I like that because um, well, we talk about it. It's fidelity to purpose. Fidelity to purpose. And it doesn't mean that there aren't processes that are important. Okay. But it's not. It's not fidelity, you know, to the protocol. It's fidelity to the purpose, and that, by the way, I think creates the sort of juice and, and um, opportunity for educators to bring passion to the work, to bring their lives into the work as opposed to separating it out. Because it's about what we're trying to do, not dictating always the specifics of how it has to be done. Letting, the, you, know, the, you know that this is something that really is close to my heart about passion and purpose. So yeah. we'll talk a little yeah. bit more about that. But um one of the things that's hard for teachers is n- letting them know that their story matters, that who they are means a lot to those kids. Just like what happened to you with uh, Mr. Kitch. It's like if you show the real you and you show your vulnerabilities and you share and you build those relationships, those kids are going to want to do work with you. They'll want to be. Isn't that right? It's actually, yeah, it's part of how we create relationships as humans. And that is our stories matter. It's who we are. And through our stories, people get to know not just who we are, but what we stand for, what's important to us. And so, um, I, I mean, I think there's not just a role for it. It's a critical element. And I think when teachers are able to then express themselves through the work, and own their passion as opposed to the sort of, you know, what's, what's my lesson sequence and I'm going to follow it whether, whether the kids are ready for it or not. We get out of that. We actually, I think, begin to unlock or reopen this profession as a, as a, as a worthy, passion-filled, purpose-driven uh, venture. And I think too much of that's been lost. Well, I don't know if it's been lost as much because we didn't have it for so hundreds yeah. of years, we moved. Yeah. We were in that, and you know, the the idea was to have compliant yes. workers. Right. And but what we had that in Plato's time, and <laughs> of course, so yeah. but bringing it back is really difficult because our for one, it takes 
it does take time to build those relationships. And they're so yes, it does. they're so worried right. about covering the curriculum, you know? Right. And, you know, and, and, and it can be within a context of content. It mm-hmm. doesn't have yeah. to be divorced. There's often, there's so much richness in content if you're looking for it. Yes. But in a compliance-based, you know, very linear, pace-driven process, they often feel, they often, educators often feel like there's not time or that doing so might somehow violate a protocol or a process uh, or create a distraction when, in fact, it's actually what matters sometimes the most I mean, there's a, a, uh, some research that uh, out of the, the tripod uh, project, researchers name escapes me for the moment from Harvard, but one of the things they noted was that for learners that struggle in school, it's the relationship that has to come first. It's great for all kids, but for kids who struggle most in school, often, you know, the old adage of, um, uh, I don't really care what you know until I know how much you care really does, it does matter. It still matters. It's always mattered. I like that quote. That That's not your quote, right? No, somewhere along. Oh, I I it just stuck with me. I like it, though. <laughs> the, the thing that I find is that when a kid is be- behaving badly and we tend to punish, we don't give that, we don't really get to find out what's causing that behavior. And, and those if we could just take time in the beginning of the year to find out who these people are in our classroom um, and that idea of a purpose driven, just like you probably didn't know your purpose until eighth grade or maybe not even then when Dr. Mr. Kitch, it's that idea of giving you the opportunity to explore who you are. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I love that you, so are a lot of the schools looking at this purpose driven, passion based? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I, let me I'll just give you a framework around it. Okay. And it's around the, this idea of, of your why, your what, and your how. So uh, when I think back over my experience as an educator and certainly as a student, but more as an educator, that most innovation, most initiatives focused heavily on what you were supposed to do and how you were supposed to do it. And if there was ever a discussion about why, why would it be important? It was very cursory. And more offered as a statement, not as an exploration, not as a driving force. And I think um, many really well-conceived initiatives, important, beneficial initiatives, died not because they, there wasn't good purpose in them. It was that nobody was focusing on the purpose, or not enough people were focusing on the pers- purpose. So we talk about it as start with why, and it's a little bit of a modification of, of Simon Sinek's uh, magic circles. He talks about why, how, and what, which makes sense when you're offering a service. For learners, however, we shift it slightly. We say, start with why, because that's the anchor point. Get real clarity on why we're doing this. What makes this compelling? Why is this something we should be spending our time on now? And then what answers our why? That what we are doing is 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 answering that really compelling question or that really compelling purpose. And if we get really clear on why and good agreement on what, we can now step back and offer lots of flexibility in how. And that's the place where I think the rediscovery of the meaning and purpose and value and passion in education can happen. Because we know where we're going and we know what we're trying to accomplish. So let's now tap the collective creativity 
of the people that are working with us. So, you know, you haven't seen my site, right? I mean, I do a lot on the why. I have a uh, define your why, learn on purpose. Yes. Is we're, we're kind of working on the same thing. And so what I saw with Simon's next work is um, the same thing, the idea of the why. But the problem is for a lot of people, they don't really know the why. And that's yes. what we can do is help them understand. If you look at your passion, explore what your strengths are. And then you can maybe determine what or discover your purpose and your why. But we don't give them time. <laughs> exactly. I would say there is such a compelling reason to do this work now. And there are so many of them. But if we neglect to do that, it's just another initiative. Yeah, I'm so, so this is your new book? <laughs> Actually, so the new book, I'll give you the really short take on it. Okay. Uh, Girls Out of an Observation uh, and conversations I've had with a number of educators who've been in this work for a while. Uh, because this work is way more than just being a better instructor or a better teacher. It's really about engaging learners in a variety of different ways. And the purpose isn't just to teach the content. It's to develop really powerful, agile learners. And that work requires um, nurturing. It requires confronting. It requires exposing. It requires a, a much wider array of interactions with learners. And, and I'm hearing with increasing frequency from educators doing this work that the term teacher doesn't really capture anymore what it is they do, that most people think of teachers teach. And while that's part of this work, it is only part of the work, that the real work is much bigger than that. It's much more compelling than that. And so uh, the book will actually explore that concept in terms of the emergence of a new profession within the broader education profession uh, that we're calling personalized learning practitioners as a term, rather than saying, I'm a teacher, I'm a personalized learning practitioner. I work with learners to stimulate and build learning capacity that actually leads to a much bigger piece. And that is, it opens the door to ask the question, what are the sort of metrics that we can put around developing learners and learning capacity? And we actually know more about this than we think. In fact, there was a lot of work done back in the 1990s before No Child Left Behind that was cut off around portfolio and demonstrations that's now starting to reemerge. But in the long run, um, the argument in the book is that this work we're doing with younger learners actually has potential for adult learners. We have, a, we have workplaces filled with workers who think learning only happens as a result of teaching, not understanding that learning is a process that happens within us. And while it can be stimulated by teaching, that's only one way that it happens. And that as we think about the changing workplace, and, and I, you know, I, it's kind of out there everywhere that learning is the driving factor in today's workplace. So what if we could use what we are learning with younger learners to help adult learners become more agile, more powerful as learners? And by the way, in the end, I think it holds the potential to flip the way the profession of education is perceived. Okay. So that's what I just gave you. So that's, that's, that's the book. Okay, what you just did, it's got me really excited and wanting to bring you back. <laughs> because we can just go on and on about this part. Yes. This is 
everyone's going to want this book. You know that. I'm going to be pushing it out there. So- I have I have the outline. I have the the chapter contents. I have the prospectus. So I'm about to get to work. Oh, so. wow. Am I lucky or what? I got the first take <laughs> on it. Oh, Jim, this is just, I mean, definitely going to talk some more about this because this is, uh, you know, I'm really interested in it. But um, I, I do to have it. to tell everyone, just watching Jim talk right there, he was on a cloud right there, just flying. <laughs> and I know that this is something deep in your heart. And you've always been really, um, you know, this has meant a lot for you. And now it's starting to come true. All those, all that work, it's starting to happen. So I'm just so thankful that you gave me this opportunity to be here with you. It was great to have the conversation. Thank you. You're very kind. Oh, thank you. We'll get you back. <laughs> and okay, we're going to put a, good. and we're putting a blog to post it. together with the links and let everybody know about it. it. Good. So thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Dr. Jim Rickabaugh. Look for a complimentary blog post about Jim where we pull together resources and links for you. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and we'd love a review. You can also subscribe to my website at barbarabray.net and then you can receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.